Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. going on the list it's going on the list you know what i realized boys i was about to walk my dog just before this and i referred it to his uh, as his um afternoon walkies and i was like what what must his afternoon walkies really mean to him like it's his way to obviously bond with me and get his exercise and wear himself out and sort of like smell the smells of the world and i thought do i have an equivalent of afternoon walkies and i thought i'm about to do it it's the podcast it's my afternoon talkies it's literally like it's it's literally where i get I refill my social batteries. I like get to talk about things. I make I make noise about things that I've done and seen. I I don't know, guys. It it's like I feel like just a very simple creature in times like this. And I just want to <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I literally had this thought before we started recording that I wanted to I don't know. I didn't even realize we were recording. I was just I, sort of oh, along shit. for the is ride. This, <laughs> I is this I wasn't I wasn't looking at the screen. I was checking my notes and yeah. I and I heard Jason do one of the biggest windups I've ever heard him do for a lead. And I was like, he pressed, he pressed the record button three seconds ago, didn't he? Yes, he did. Much um, more perceptive than I, Cody. I was still reading about the China syndrome and I was just vibing. I was like, yeah, dude, hell yeah. We're all just fucking Pavlov dogs in the end. And then Jason started talking about his dog and he was like, well, yeah, wait until Abe shows up and then we'll, we'll put this, we'll put this on the record, which to be fair, fair. Fair. We are on the record, uh, and we're on the record as saying thank you very much, uh, listeners, for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw at or through at, movies we saw at or people we met through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I have bewitched you. You will die. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and I'm going to marry a woman, not a beast. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mack, and I can't let go of this hate in my heart, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, our valiant fourth guest, the A in J-Cha, is uh, uh, unfortunately, he's watching F1 or something in Louisiana, or not Louisiana, Louisville, Louisville. I can't do that to our uh, Kentucky listeners. Um, but in his absence, I have prepared a short summary of the film we're about to talk about today. Yes, I'm going to do my impression of it. Yes, uh, the film we're talking about today is uh, Il Demonio, um, or in English, it is known as The Demon, a 1963 Italian horror film directed by Brunello Rondi, starring Dalia Dalia Lavi and Frank Wolf. Uh, I had in my subtitles for this film, they called her full name uh, Purificazione, mm-hmm. and, in, and, on, and on Wikipedia, she's listed as Purificata. So I'm not sure who's right and who's wrong, but it sounded like they were saying Purificazione, and that's a much more fun name. Uh, she's known as Purif in the over the course of the film, uh, because we're not going to say six different syllables for one person's name every single time. But uh, she is a young libertine in rural Italy who resorts to arcane rituals to place a curse on the man she loves. Uh, that man is arranged to be married to another woman. 
and she seeks his affection. Uh, though the curse doesn't seem to actually work, uh, word does get around town that she has resorted to witchcraft, uh, and the town slowly turns against her uh, and seeks to shun her from the village uh, as a witch when uh, ominous occurrences start to disrupt daily life. That includes the death of a young boy in the village uh, and the climate becoming unfriendly to the crops they survive on. Over the course of the movie, she is, I should say up at the top, uh, several times sexually assaulted by various members of the village, uh, including uh, religious leaders uh, and others. And um, just over the course of the movie, we have uh, that. That's all I could really write. So I'm, I'm freeballing here. But over the course uh, of the movie, she is uh, increasingly ostracized and victimized by the people of the village, um, despite no clear evidence of her actual witchcraft or her. Um, I guess it's it's a witch hunt. A witch hunt is on uh, and uh, in, in rural Italy in the early 1900s. Um, this film uh, stars. Oh, I already went through the stars. Um I, I'm just lost without our anchor over there. Uh, I call everybody an anchor. It's like how Finn calls everybody the, their second favorite podcast host. Uh, everybody on this podcast is my anchor, but only when they're missing. Um, where do we want to start talking about this movie? There are like some distinct thoughts I had about it, but they don't feel like starter points, I guess. Um, Harry, save me, sure. Harry. Um, I really liked at the beginning of this, there's a weird sort of like faux documentarian, um, like uh, – like readout that says the events uh, covered in this movie are based on real events that happened. These sort of like um, demonic possessions have um, scientific evidence backing and they've happened all over the world or something along those lines. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I'm, I was really interested in that and it kind of informed a lot of my reading. Um, I think obviously you're meant to find it ironic or at least I certainly found it ironic, but what did you guys think of that? And did it sort of like, um, color any of your perception of what went on later in the uh, movie? Uh, I really liked the intro. It does like in addition after right after that, um, like this is a true story type setup. Uh, the first scene is of Purif uh, sort of enacting her rituals that I don't, you don't find out where she actually found out about them, but she's like drawing her own blood and burning her hair mixed with the blood to do something. And it's not like there's not a whole lot of exposition there and not very clear why or what she's trying to achieve or from where she's getting this. Um, I really liked that tone because it made me feel like I was just an observer to like a thing that I wasn't really supposed to know. It left the understanding of the scene just outside of my reach and yet being very clear up at the front that like, this is a true story. This is something that was supposed to have happened. That was the scene setter. That was supposed to be like, this is actually based in fact. And yet you're not going to get like the details. You're just contextually, you know, that she's up to something that people would probably not approve of because it's a little weird to stab yourself in the dark and burn your own hair mixed with the blood, all these like little things that she's doing. Um, and then slowly as it's revealed that, you know, what she's trying to do and what her relationship to, um, oh, is it Antonio, Frank Wolf's character? Uh, her relationship to Antonio is, is revealed and it's like, okay, so this, I'm not sure what the function of that, you know, this happens, this really happened, it's historical fiction kind of thing. I'm not sure what the function of that is if we focus so specifically on that story that we do between Perif and Antonio. But as the movie goes on, I think we have, um, like there is a sort of a, a universalization about like the themes of this movie. The I think it's gonna be really important to talk about how it's set in like a rural part of the world, um, how the very folk horror tradition comes into play and how it's sort of commented on throughout. And of course, like it's just a movie about victimization of women, obviously. Um, and you know, the deprecation of agency uh as you know, public opinion turns against them essentially. So I I, I was having a hard time lining up the framing with like where we got with the movie, but it was a fun way to watch it like evolve from that, I guess, because 
you watch so many movies that are like, oh, this really happened. It was a creepy, the taking of Deborah Logan really happened or some shit. And it's like, you, you 30% believe that up front and then something crazy happens in the movie and you're like, oh, that was just a lie. Yeah. And th- th- that's a really good, um, great question, Harry, and great, I guess, like, um, especially that last part, Jason, um, which transitions pretty well into like kind of how I interpreted it, that sort of whiplash we get now, maybe not so much anymore, but there's definitely, I feel like within the last 10, 15 years, um, especially in the horror genre of, um, you know, they're just saying like, oh yeah, this is, we can just like throw this disclaimer in front of our movie and color our, our movie a certain way. Even if people aren't 100, aren't 100% buying into that, it is something else to throw into the mix. It's another variable. Um, I'm already getting into like my stat head, um, perspective, which I don't know if that's a good sign or not, but, um, that's sort of unintentionally how I took it this time as well. It's like, I, you know, uh, without really having any expectations about what to, what I was about to watch, just having that in the back of my head. And then I forgot about it for a while, but eventually it does, I think, come to, even if it doesn't, um, uh, empirically inform the, the visual language, I did feel myself, uh, drawn to and kind of captivated by the particular, um, like visual and narrative language of this movie and all of the things that are potentially going into it without even really having any firm conclusions about it, but just like the ways in which, um, people act and behave toward, um, Puri, uh, Antonio doing something, um, prescribably stupid. Um, don't know if that's a word, but like w- when Pierre says, Hey, uh, drink this wine um and cheer cheers the dead and he's like cheers the dead that seems like a weird thing to do it's like uh fucking forget about it just drink it it's just like and, it, and then she he like drinks it literally comically looney tunes is like right behind him over his shoulder literally pouring, pouring powder shit. into yeah. the wine and he's just like happens to be looking off in another direction so he doesn't see. i was like what is going on why would he just watch her do it right or like you know um maybe a a better quote-unquote better example but people blaming overcast weather on witchcraft um and that's that comes later (laughs) in the movie as this this town uh descends more into uh, a weighted sort of hysteria against uh our 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 main character our hero of the film um and however much we're supposed to associate that it's like hey that that was a specific time and place or was it um or maybe this was exaggerated somewhat um but it was at the very least like a, a it, as, as far as an additional lens for me to watch this movie and try to make sense of it i like that it did that without necessarily gravitating me toward like one sort of island on which i could reside in and make sense of what i was watching but i do think i overall liked what i was watching um did you harry yeah, um, I think that if I have a criticism of this movie, it might be that it's a little bit obvious, but I don't think that that's necessarily a criticism. One thing I really liked in particular about the opening was the irony of saying that this sort of thing, as it happens all over the world or as it has happened over and over again, um, I had an even more obvious reading of this than you two did, which is just that like nothing supernatural happens in this movie, oh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept waiting for that to happen, but like this is a movie about... like the psychological realities of a woman who has her um, agency stripped from her by a um, like religious zealot uh, community of religious zealots. Right. So uh, it's, it's ironic to say that this stuff is true and it happens all the time because it does. Right. But it, it just so happens that they're not talking about demonic possession. They're talking about the ways in which uh, communities scapegoat 
the powerless and the marginalized, blame yes. them for their own societal ills, and then ostracize them from the community. So that was one thing. Um, the other thing I really liked about that, in I don't know if this was necessarily uh, something that I got from the intro or something I got from the visual language that you described, Cody. Um, but one way that this movie sort of subverted my expectations is it, I don't think that at any point it was a willful battle of ideologies. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't ever like a Belladonna of Sadness, for instance, where the Belladonna like consciously represents an alternative to the dogma that has been uh, shoved down her throat and the throat of the people. Uh, Pura fully believes that she's possessed in this movie, in my opinion. You know what I mean? I think that she she comes to uh, sort of reclaim the agency that comes with being demonically possessed because the alternatives are so grim. But she is never at any point thinking like, you're wrong about me and about uh, like what's going on here. She's not like, oh, this this wasn't witchcraft. Mm -hmm. You're just uh, like insane, overzealous um crusaders right. she's like no i am a witch and i'm like i'm still trying to get like, away with like, it li literally quite the opposite there's the scene where she bends over backwards and walks on her hands yes and, like on the back and we of her see feet. The, the church upside down that was maybe that my favorite shot such a sick sequence because oh it's God, like it's now so now we see it the way that she sees it right right mm -hmm. at that point and like they keep trying to like even further strip her agency from her by saying like, oh, you're it's a demon that's inside you are you beelzebub are you leviathan and it, she's like no it's me like this is not an outside force. This yeah. is something that, yeah. And and so I, I really appreciated that sort of like framing of her psychology. I feel like um, it was, and maybe maybe this is problematic. I don't know. You guys can, um, but I feel that if Purif had been a more sort of contemporary feminist icon in the sense that she was more aware of her persecution, um, and of the irrationality of her persecution, this movie wouldn't have hit as hard for me as it did. Do you know what I mean? Like, I really like that Purif is actually like fully invested in this community. She has the beliefs that everybody else does. That just doesn't save her, right? Right. Especially when like, this is kind of touching on the full core aspect that I wanted to. I had like this idea brewing in my head. And then uh, I saw that on Wikipedia, they mentioned uh, that it's been called out as like an example of early, like uh, full core tradition being brought into cinema, uh, especially like European, I guess. But that is getting toward like, when I f started to think about why full core tradition and why these things like exist, why there is the boogeyman, why the chupacabra is a thing. It's like, it's for a few distinct, re I'm not a scholar of it, but it's for a few distinct reasons, like socially, right? One of them is to strengthen communities and like build, I like in a lot of cases, isolationist communities. This is not a big town. It's like a hundred people, maybe 150 uh, in the middle of fucking rural countryside, Italy. Um, and like, she is part of that community. She's very much like, She's uh, in her 20s, probably. She's like part of a I a read her as with... maybe even younger, which is kind of interesting, but yeah. we can equivocate about that for sure. Right, right. Definitely. She's she's a young a young woman. Uh, she's pretty. She has like social standing, apparently. She's got like parents who are active in the community. She has brothers, I think. Uh, the, those two, including, a, they kind of look like like dipshits. I <laughs> just know how to swing a swing an axe. But, uh, you know, she's apparently she's she's not just a complete outcast from the start, right? Like you said, she's part of this community and she understands life the way they understand it. And I think that is why when like something happens when she is um, uh, uh, persecuted, when 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 the paranoia starts to set in and uh, she's not like 
and 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 town favor turns against her it's not like she doesn't feel like she can't because of like the traditions that have gone into building this community i don't think that as a character and this isn't super obvious i'm reading i don't think that she's able to like switch her mindset and say now these people are wrong now these people are like they don't understand me they do understand right her. like i we, think it's like very important that she never gets there, right. right no I'm, I'm 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 with you about like yeah it's not the most like the power of like being a positive uh, like be, being being sure of yourself and like combating the, the evils of society. It's like no, these aren't necessarily evil evils of society. These are the traditions that have brought them together. These are like the rituals that they hold to, and she has been part of them. She has, for better or worse, been inculcated, and it's made her a really strong part member of the community. Presumably, like she's known to most everybody, uh, and she presumably is well liked before this, you know, bout with mental illness or whatever we're going to call her break from reality, where she wants to like start cursing the men she loves. Um, but it is like it then makes her part of it. And I think that's a very realistic portrayal of that is like she wouldn't abandon everything she knows about the way that she lives life just because the people she trusts start to second guess that, too, I guess, or like start to blame her for all the wrongs of their community. Like she's probably been part of doing that, maybe not to other people, but definitely for other reasons. She's probably been one of those people clapping at the clouds to get them to go away and make the rain come back or make the sun come back like I don't know. It's, it's, this is like touching at the larger cloud of my thoughts about the movie, but that's a really like interesting penetration point, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I actually come to think of it kind of what you were describing, specifically the moment when the, the town starts to really rebel against her, um, is when I started thinking about what time and place, uh, which this particular time and place, I'm also not a scholar. I don't, I don't know a ton about this, but it, like something as far as like the few rules, um, if we, uh, calling them rules feels weird, but just like uh, things to concrete things to keep in our, our heads as we're watching. Like I imagine it would be frowned upon even given this extreme situation for, um, for a uh, family to like completely turn their back on her and for as much as, for as much as her father, like really like, thinks so little of her. He like, he turns a gun on the highest standing members of this community and be like, Hey, get the fuck off my porch. <laughs> Like you weren't, you weren't laying a hand on anybody uh, in this family. Um, and then of course, Perif is, is down bad and gives away the whole charade and, and gives the whole thing up. But, um, yeah, like I, I was definitely thinking about that too. And also, I mean, just so it doesn't go unsaid, we'll, we'll probably, I mean, be talking about her quite a bit, but, um, Dalia Lavi rules, uh, in this movie, like, incredibly good. Dude, really like the, everything about her, I mean, her performance and how, she like her her sort of wide eyedness is is paired so well with just like um the movements of the camera and like the camera knowing what to focus on for example like if she's on screen like it's going to be just whatever she's doing and she has such great um like physicality in this movie her sort of awkward um manic running her like some really great cinematography of her standing up on hills just like watching things happen just like this like a couple degrees of separation from what you would expect um, any sort of leading, um, like actress to do in your movie. She was doing these like rather unusual, but really I don't, just like things that are, that are, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of fun to watch again, just like a full commitment physically, um, and emotionally to, uh, this role. I don't know. I, um, I don't know, pot potential queen of the trial on dark horse candidate. There's like a lot of really good stuff from her in this movie. Well, and, and like such huge shades of the other, 
uh, front runner, uh, Isabel Adjiani in possession, right? Like, I think it was impossible for me not to think about that performance. Um, Yeah, she's so tender in this movie. It's surprising. She plays it so young. Uh, Purif does often. She embodies so many different components of this character without any sort of inherent contradiction where she can be confident. She can be uh, afraid pretending to be confident. She can be confident pretending to be afraid, right? She can, um, she, she always, she has to sell this very particular characterization that we've been talking about, which is that this is not the sort of like Hegelian thesis antithesis battle, right? She fully believes everything everybody's saying to her. And in fact, she's ashamed of it at a certain point, right? Until she sort of like scrapes together her own agency based on realities that are truer than the ones that they're trying to put on her, right? Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, because like, I think that the the really important thing to show here is like from the very beginning, like she is being gaslit, right? Like, Everyone in the in the village community is telling her that like her relationship and even the Wikipedia page itself, which is a wild thing that I noticed. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Purif is a lonely, uninhibited. First of all, uninhibited. Okay, young peasant living in the, uh, the small village of Luke. Luciana, where she is treated as a pariah by the locals. Purif has an unhealthy obsession with Antonio and makes desperate, inappropriate attempts to court him. Uh, Wikipedia, that is not what happened in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Pri- now, Pur- prior, prior to the events of the movie. He, 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 they had a relationship. Yeah. She is a much younger woman than he is a man. He has a standing in the community and capital, and he had a clandestine relationship with her and then jilted her in favor of a more politically expedient wedding. And maybe, and again, maybe like at the same time, right? I, I believe it's, it's yes. in, in, oh, and, or, or and like implied that, that she's, that he's had a, a relationship with this woman that he's trying to get a dowry from. Uh, and during that courtship, is also fooling around with Perth. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and again, like that never vanishes, right? Like Antonio is incredibly lustful toward her as literally everyone in this community is, right? And like you said, unfortunately, right, she's assaulted like twice by different aspects of this community, including a like a would-be priest and a, a shepherd. And that um, that needs to be sort of like demonstrated, right? Is that like she is not pr- like – she the the sort of like uh psychological break that happens with her is because she does perceive something that is true that she's being told isn't true which is that all of these people have an unhealthy obsession with her right like they they hold her in contempt because of their lust for her and the fact that they're all so uh obsessed with her is why she becomes the scapegoat right because she's the sort of like living proof that they aren't the people they say they are and so if they can punish her for their lust and their mistakes then uh they can prove that it was actually her fault all along and she comes to sort of accept that role as the demon right um but in the process she says but like guess what the the sort of like um the dialectical fight that ends up happening is like, I will accept all of this power and, and horror that you're putting on me, but you have to accept uh, that it is having the effect on you that you are trying to deny. Right. That's what happens with she and Antonio at the end, which is so fascinating. Yeah. I like the way that she's presented is counter to what I like. I had very little, I didn't really know what this movie was about, but uh, Harry, when you bring up that, like you thought there might be that there was supposedly something supernatural about the about like that actually in in the in the course of the events of the movie, you'd like witness something that was clearly supernatural, like 
something that could not have happened in reality, you don't. And I think like the fact that it keeps to reality, there's nothing, you know, uh, clearly uh, demonic or possessive. And like she, she acts strangely throughout the, throughout the film, especially after her, her curse is placed on, uh, on Antonio. But like, in her actual presentation, the way that the movie frames her and specifically frames her in, in contrast to Antonio, I was noticing that it is like her presentation is as uh, like, I don't want to say pitiable, but somewhat empathetic, like that you never get the idea that she actually is acting completely mentis, that she's actually like choosing to do these things, that she is like just by wiring, by being like we talk about being a member of this community, she knows how to act like this is just the way that she's been taught to think um, and like not ex- ex- not exclusively evil. Like she, uh, you know, only ever defends herself um, while Antonio himself is. And I'm not going to make the t- talking point about this, but like just in contrast to her, he's a snake. He's like we were just saying, he's double timing a woman and only really marrying that woman for, you know, her potential dowry. Uh, he claims to have the names of their children picked out um, and then he'll tell them later. Uh, like he's, he's, he's a one, he's the one li- like perpetuating this lie of purity to his, to his betrothed, uh, where like Perif has never really like, she doesn't hold that standing in the community. She knows that she doesn't, she doesn't claim to, uh, she's only pursuing this man. Right. I, I just found it really interesting that it's, it doesn't like ever show Perif like it shows her doing the weird back crawling and all these were like really interesting. Uh, I'm assuming in 1963, quite weird to see in a European horror film, but it's never like, yeah, look at this crazy demonic possessed wench. It's like, it didn't read that way to me throughout the movie, which I, it, it, it was a combination of the cinema, cinematography and acting and the scripting uh, that I like, I didn't read it that way uh, throughout, you know, that just like the way that she wasn't, she wasn't made a bad guy in a movie where she's supposed to be a witch, I guess, is the shortest way to say it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I will offer up um, like one meager devil's advocate point, devil's advocate, um, and then immediately double back on it um, just to kind of outline what my thought process was while watching. The one scene, and it's a scene that I really liked in the moment and like even more um, just in retrospect, uh, but the the one scene where um, Purif, uh, and Dahlia Lobby's performance is a little more like reined in, um, and less wide eyed and manic, uh, when she's down by the water and she has that conversation with the kid Salvatore. Um, like really great scene. Um, if for any other reason, because it's a contrast to everything else that we're seeing. And, uh, a lot of what dominated my thought process, especially in like the latter half of that scene is like, mm. Because it was a scene like immediately following one of um, the instances of of sexual assault and like her being by the water and seeing this like male kid, a part of me was like, like, is this going to be uncomfortable? Like, what's going to happen here? Um, Like strange energy emanating from that kid. And I wrote that down and then the movie immediately goes to be like, oh yeah, there's good reason for that. That kid's Mm -hmm. fucking dead. (laughs) Um, And uh, because like, and in the moment it, it offered up, saying all these things like in the moment in the moment in the moment it offered up a a wrinkle for like oh is she like i'm not convinced she's possessed but this seems like such a strange thing for for her to be manifesting and for the movie to like try and show me that she's manifesting but in reality i guess like i don't know what you guys think about it like she probably you know because this is so different from everything else that we're seeing from her 
um, not necessarily like her first person perspective, but like sort of the film's, I guess, visual language for what we're trying, for what we're supposed to think that she's seeing. Um, like it, it, is it sort of like a misrepresentation? Was she like, was she actually aware of what this kid was going through it? But like some part of her was sort of forgetting that in the moment. Um, like, I, I don't really know what sort of explanation we have to offer, but it did like it ultimately kind of re, uh, force me to recontextualize everything I had been watching up to that point and everything that I saw after the fact and sort of reconsider, um, kind of what her, her state was. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe sort of a weird pivot, but that, that's it, it, such a, a jarringly different scene and possibly like a very important scene. I'm figured I'd throw it up there. Harry, you have thoughts on that? I love that scene, dude. You mean the, the scene where it becomes an Igmar Bergman movie for just like one scene? And like, 100%. Oh, he like, he looks so good, that kid. And he's like dressed all in black and we see him from far away when he's waving. And like, you don't learn that he's dead until after the scene. And so you only learn the significance of the scene retroactively. Uh, yeah, really, really striking stuff. That's probably my favorite, some of my favorite moments in the movie for sure. Um, I also think that like, maybe this is a rote sort of like reading of it, but I think that this movie does a lot to sort of give away the game to you. And I think that giving you the perspective of the kid in contrast to the perspective of the village about the kid is really important for us to understand that I think that this is a like self-consciously postmodern movie in the sense that I think it's speaking to an audience in 1963, not sort of like an audience that doesn't know all this stuff. Like I think that it wants the audience to know going in that these villagers are religious zealots, that Catholicism to this extent is basically a mental disease or a mental health issue. Um, and that there's <laughs> diagnosed with Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, zealotry, certainly. Um, and that, and that uh, hashtag pure if did nothing wrong, right? Like, I don't think that's really supposed to be news to us. I think that this movie is uh, trying to create tension between what we see happening and what pure understands as happening to her. Um, and so I think scenes like that are really important and scenes like, you know, the, the last lines in this movie where she basically spells out the themes in the movie, right? Where she's like, I'm one of the forgotten people. Like I won't appear in history books or something like that. And that's the end of the movie. Um, I think that like, we are at all times supposed to understand that like, oh, like this is a person who, because of this community that is living in an anti-human way, they are venting their, natural sort of frustrations with the way that they've imposed upon themselves to live onto this scapegoat, as has happened so many times throughout history. Um, the real tragedy of this movie to me is that Purif did not understand herself that way, maybe until the very end, right? I think that like the real tragedy here is that not only was, was Purif scapegoated and had her like there's a there's an even more existential robbing of agency here, right? Where she actually embraced the fact that she was a demon in all of its horrors at the end of this movie, right? Um, and even has sort of a victory when when she gets Antonio to admit that like it was her all along, right? There's that very cathartic moment right before spoilers, right? He stabs her, where he even says to her like he needs her validation. He's like, please tell me that it's not me that I'm not the one that's wrong, that you did this to me, that you're a witch. And she's like, yes. And she like literally absolves him of his sins, right? She's like, yes, I am a witch. I took this from you. Get it out of my body. And he's like, thank you. And then he kills her, right? And like, that's when she figures it out. But it's like, that was always her role. And we knew that. 
But she didn't know that until the very end, right? And how many people who were scapegoated had sort of internalized the idea that they deserved what was coming to them, right? And like that to me is like the really heartbreaking part of this movie. And I think that like little conversations, like the thing that she has with the kid where that is like the most human we see either of them, right? And like they have this really touching conversation just as sort of like ships passing in the night. Um, it's meant to show like the contrast between the people on the margins and the people who are a part of the quote unquote history we see unfold. And it's, I think she didn't truly like know like what you're talking about. She didn't have that like understanding of herself until, and I might be reading things like incorrectly in the last span, definitely at the end of the movie, but in the last like 10 minutes, uh, the, uh, priest, the father, whatever reverend is, has told, um, Antonio to burn old wood in the middle of the village to sort of like lift the curse and blow it out of the town. And so they do that. And in the middle of the, uh, in, in like the town square in this burning bonfire, um, uh, Perf shows back up and confronts Antonio. And I forget if they exchange words, but sort of wordlessly they look at each other. And that is the moment when I was like, Oh, they both realize in this moment that there is no curse. Like there's, there's nothing supernatural here. If not like, overtly they sort of like understand uh you know despite their situation despite despite what they're doing to actually like lift a curse that there actually is nothing going on here of course then they share words about like her affliction and you know removing it from her and etc and then he kills her as a you know as a um as a way to continue that uh exorcism so to speak but i i don't know what it was about that scene that made me think like oh clearly they both understand that this has kind of all been farce like he's gaining by uh by 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 leveraging uh the town's ire against her because she claims to have um you know been a disruptor in this relationship he's trying to make work you know and he wants her to basically uh he wants to ostracize her he wants to at like as things get worse and worse and worse and he gets the town or not he but like as the town starts to turn more and more against her uh he then needs to not that he was ever a good person, but that he then needs to go along with the whole charade and finish it, you know, sort of like kill her to make to to make a victim of her, to make an example of her almost. I don't know if this is like actually what the movie was doing or saying, but it was just that look in that moment. And then they walk off together to the field where she then dies. Um, that was it seemed like really fraught to me, really like the tense with with like realizations between them. And it might just be because both of them are really good actors, but I was reading maybe more than was actually there, but it enhance that moment for me a bit no yeah i love that scene it's so rad that like it's it's like uh like a final duel it's like freaking sanjuro right like the movie's over and then our two main characters just meet in a way that doesn't even really make um like logical sense right like everyone in the village is out here burning the air they're literally screaming burn mm -hmm. the air their uh hysterias reach such a fever pitch and then all of a sudden they all just like exhumed they're just gone and she and Antonio are like the only two people on earth and they're standing around this bonfire. Um, to me, that was Antonio's confession, right? Like, like wordlessly right there when he comes to her and he is like at her beck and call. That's when he was like, oh, like, Pierre, if you were always right, like I was always obsessed with you. I was always like deeply in lust with you. That's why I had to destroy you. And like, I was always like, the villain here, the the one perpetuating all of these evils. And it was because of my like absolute lustful obsession with you. And she is the one. And like for her part now, like they both have this like come to Jesus or I come to demon moment, <laughs> I guess where, where it's like, she's like, I know. And I, I accept that. 
And now I can be like the vessel for that for you. So they both sort of like, I think that 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 wordless scene between the two of them is like the culmination of their respective character arcs, right? It's like all of the illusions, the scales sort of like drop from their eyes. And they're like, oh, this is what was happening is we had this sort of like mutual, mutually psychotic sort of like uh, mutually self-destructive relationship. And Antonio comes out ahead, right? Because he is able to leverage the awful uh, inequalities of the time against her to, to perpetuate his own evils, right? And so she becomes a vessel for him to scapegoat his sins onto, just as she had been for the village, just as she had been for the church, etc. And the cycle goes on, and, and we get to the end of this movie, and she's like, yeah, I'm like one of a hundred million people that this has happened to all through history and time. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah, totally. And I, I guess my quick addition to this, I think ultimately I didn't really um, register a, as much to me watching it, but I think ultimately I, I felt my feelings aligned more with, um, I guess, Harry, what you were talking about, it being sort of um, more a, a one-sided realization or, or confession. I do uh, like your reading of it, Jason, if for any other reason, because um, I like the idea of them having a, like a McCready and Childs um, scene, like in the thing where both of them, like in the, you know, deep in the background, they have suspicions and like um, information about the other that uh, yes. open up, open up some additional. Um, yeah. Like uh, uh, open up some additional possibilities for like our own readings of the movie in, in the 11th hour. Um, and because having, I mean, have not that not that anything ever, or rather, not that nothing ever happens to Purif, and that she doesn't undergo an arc. But um, having her come to some other uh, like realization, it might have been something. But I think it is more important uh, for this movie and its message to have her remain steadfast, and us come to the conclusion that we have that it's like, oh yeah, like she. She is somebody who is um, assaulted by her family, assaulted by society, her community, um, and like she is, she is still seen as as the outcast, the the, the black sheep, um, and that uh, and she's not the only one, and that uh, that really fucking sucks. Yeah, it's it never really lets up on that. I, I, you know, assaulted by her community, assaulted by the world. There was one scene that made me wonder, like, and I'm taking my timestamp because I would like this to be a discrete point of discussion there was one scene that made me think is there any like implication of the audience in this perception of perf in this like victimization of perf there's it's the possession scene where like theoretically we're seeing through the eyes of the demon that's possessing her or whatever and the camera does some wild stuff it flips upside down and it like keeps like slowly zooming in and out in a very like throbbing weird way that's just like kind of uncomfortable to watch it really caught my eye in a movie that is full of i think great cinematography but I wondered if there's anything to, and I'm just throwing the idea out to the group. Is there any implication of the audience as like observer to this as like, oh, this happens everywhere around. Uh, you are probably a member of a society where this happens to people, to women, to those on the outskirts of society, to those underserved and marginalized. Um, it's right after another scene of incredible violence toward Perf. I believe it's when the priest rapes her and uh, she confronts Antonio in the field and he blows her off once again. Um it's just like it it felt like 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 I was the demon in that scene, I guess. If I if it was supposed to be the implication that I the not that I that a demon was like possessing her and there was you know, she her in her weakest moment she was being attacked, I like it almost felt like I was 
being implicated there uh, as just a member of the audience is like witness to this. I don't know if the rest of the movie jives with that idea, but again, it was just like segmented as an idea, as a feeling in the moment while watching it. Um, it felt like there could be something there. Any comment? Yeah, I like that. I mean, like I said, I think that this movie fully expects you to understand who the villains are from the very beginning. Um, That being said, the thing about that scene that really stuck out to me and that kind of gets at the implication that you're talking about, Jason, is that I think that that's like at, that's like sort of the fulcrum of the movie in that we see both ideologies and their central conflict so clearly there, right? Where it's like, according to the priest and the people around the priest, the thing that's hurting her that's hurting Purif is inside her, right? It's a demon. It's outside of her. And to Purif, the thing that's hurting her is them, right? Like, it is them castigating her and judging her. And I hmm. think that, like, the fact that we see both of those things in tandem and we can understand, the movie has given us, in my opinion, the tools to understand where both of these characters are coming from, even though we have our own third understanding of what's happening, um, is... And like the inversion of the church, I think that like there, there's this really great thing that shows how like understanding becomes impossible and we meet these points where the demon is created over and over again because it's like the harder that they try on her, the more she's going to understand them as her enemy because they are, right? Um, and the more she's going to act like the demon that they attack, right? And so like I think that there might be – um the audience implication there, it, it has something to do with sort of like this, um, this necessity to see a narrative, right? It's it's like um, Purif had one and the, the priests had one. Obviously, Purif was right. I'm not saying that like we got to see both sides or anything. Um, well, not right in the sense that like she thought she was, in my opinion, like a demon. She thought she was in command of powers. Um, she just understood that those powers were not her enemy uh the way that these guys wanted her to think um and uh i yeah i don't know if that makes sense with with what you're saying but i think that like there's this idea that like we understand i don't know that we're necessarily supposed to be the priests exactly in that sequence but i think that there is something to the idea of like oh i had never understood just how fundamental sort of like unstoppable force versus um unbreakable object these conflicts were and now that i've stepped outside them i can kind of see how that happens i guess how how they drive one another i guess yeah that that makes sense i i think the the tldr uh i guess for how i view that and that's actually a really great discussion point jason uh not to not to just you know what hey great podcasting jason um no, that's uh, I hadn't considered. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't considered the scene that way. I think ultimately, it's um, if it is aiming to be like condemning or implicating of the audience, um, it's not like it doesn't do as much as it probably could have. But it also doesn't necessarily provide us. I mean, it obviously doesn't provide us comfort. Um, just like kind of thinking about it fundamentally or textually, as far as I can recall, um, and definitely let me know if I'm mischaracterizing, but we're not, at no point do we get the, like, the view of Purif as she's, as she's crawling, because she's like, she's crawling away from the door of, like, the building, the chapel, or, or whatever you want to call it, um, and, like, away from the group of people who brought her there, which, for as, um, 
sympathetic or more so like not sympathetic as the people in this community could be if there were any um if there were going to be any compassionate people it would be from the people who brought her there her family um like i'm sure they brought her there for a wide variety of reasons but we don't look at her from the perspective of her like moving away from us um it's like we're either kind of like with her or looking through her eyes which is a fun muddying of that perspective of you know like we're 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 in with the cameras up upside down how are we supposed to be viewing this i think if me um like looking at this like i i feel like i would have felt especially implicated as a viewer um if i were the thing that she was crawling toward that sort of false sense of salvation or like her like it being communicated like like move toward the like the holy symbols the holy imagery um you know things that are like very sacred um and like all, all of that is is sort of a sort of a facade a, a false front for mm-hmm. again a wide variety of reasons um so yeah, I I don't know. Like that's that doesn't offer much as far as like a firm no. but as me like providing a sort of um like bounds to or, or like guardrails to view this for I I I think it's a little column A, a little column B. Yeah, I, I think it's mostly podcaster brain. I'm like when it's somebody in a movie looks at the camera, they're looking at me. Looking straight through the screen at me. Um I uh I think it's it's particularly important we bring up that like this is again this is the scene that um follows a scene where a, a priest that she goes to willingly with her family's approval ostensibly to help her instead sexually assaults her right the second sexual assault of the movie to that point to say nothing of the physical assaults that she sustains uh near constantly in this movie uh, it can be kind of rough to watch um so I guess uh, content warning if you're interested in this movie and for some reason you haven't seen it. Um, but I think that like that goes to show it's sort of like further evidence that like in that sequence, like we are supposed to understand that the priests aren't the good guys, right? Like we are supposed to understand that like she is tying the sexual assault she just experienced to the violation of her that is now happening in this sequence where they're thrusting the cross at her. They force her down onto the ground. They make her touch the, um, her forehead to the ground. All of those things happen. Right. I think that like, maybe where the implication is. And, and like I said, this kind of goes back to my core reading of the movie is that um, like there, there is something comforting about the idea. I think that, Purif herself understood what was really happening to her and understood that she was blameless and understood that she like wasn't um, the evil person that they thought she was. That's not what happens, though, right? Like the real, the really horrible thing, and maybe this is where the audience is implicated, is that Purif herself thinks that she is all of those things. That's how she arrives where she does at the end where she's like, well, I'm going to get mine. Right. It's like everything they say about me is true. I am the demon that you're making me out to be. And so I'm going to do what demons do. And I'm going to get what I was going for from the beginning because she hasn't been given an alternate path. Right. Nobody because nobody wants an alternate path for her. They all want her to be that demon. Um, and so I, the thing I really like about this movie is like, there is no outside of Catholicism in it. Right. Like you are fully ensconced in the universe in which the religion of the time is a reality of the time, even though there's a tension because we know it's not right. Um, I think that, that like, I really like the, the sort of implication that like, what are you doing to your scapegoats? Right? Like they don't know their scapegoats. Right. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with all the tools that it's been, that it pulls out the, you know, the folklore tradition that we were talking about, the, like that intersection with like uh sort of commentary on misogynist patriarchal society, et cetera, like the intersection of the Catholic church with this is particularly like almost transgressive. I don't know exactly what attitudes were like in 1963, but um, like it is, I think at its core saying like that these misogynist traditions deeply held do not just like uh, 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 de-emphasize the role of and like uh, remove the agency of women uh, specifically like as as the Wikipedia entry calls her un, 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 unlimited unbridled what is the term? uninhibited, uninhibited which is the most euphemistic women. shit I have it's, ever heard it's it's the very Wikipedia language version uh, but well, it's, it's, it's also it's slut shaming yeah Wikipedia like what are you talking about <laughs> like I like I said it's like they put an auto replacer on like yeah but um it's saying that not only does that like directly affect those people uh, and I won't like limit it to women, but like for the discussion purpose of the discussion does not limit it to just those women, but like it actively hides and protects the actual like monsters of society. The, you know, the, the people of power who abuse it, the philanderers who, uh, you know, ab- abuse those women, the like people who use their position to literally just rapists. I mean, throughout the movie, she's like, we've already discussed, near constantly abused in one way or another several times sexually and it's like it's equating directly the tools of oppression with the same things that actually like preserve protect and uphold these structures even in somewhere like as remote and we're luciano rural italy you know like even in small communities it just like this effect is is two-pronged you know not just to keep uh basically women down but to glorify and protect horrible people in positions well, in, of power. I in guess. fact, that is the real primary function of it, right? I mean, like that's that is what the Catholic Church is about, right? It's it's what a lot of like oppressive systems are about. Look at like American conservatism. It's like, oh, the problem isn't American values, it's that outside forces that we can blame for all of our ills have uh like subverted the proper course of things. Here it's like, oh, like our town community isn't um like in a in a bad way because we're all broken people because of the psychological bondage that we place ourselves in that make us un- incapable of handling our own thoughts and feelings and make us hateful toward one another um it's because there's this woman that we can be hateful toward. And as long as we can blame her for all of our problems, we never have to address the root of the problem. And that will go on forever and ever because there will always be a scapegoat. Because the, the people who are uh, responsible for perpetuating injustice will be able to perpetuate injustice in perpetuity, right? That's that's the horror here, right? Is is yeah. that like nobody is ever going to be brought to justice. Like nobody is ever going to get what's coming to them. It's always going to be visited upon the people that they can visit it upon. Right? And that's right. And to the point where even the people themselves will begin to understand their point of view, right? Like that they, they these people can be infected existentially by the oppressive person's narrative right um and the which oppressive is, per- the person person in this case being like the spark of it being antonio right being like the source of the essentially a rumor essentially right. like hey witch in town burn Jeez, um god it's a it's a fraught movie it's it's uh got big stuff under there but in 1963 it's a little hard to pull apart for me like again when i see those things i go for a 
very simple read of like, is this doing this? It's kind of like our discussion of a couple of the Tanaka movies is like, is it doing this or is it just 2022 brain infecting my read of a 1951 movie or something insane like that? Uh, but a high recommend from uh, Jason Daphnis cannot cannot speak on, on behalf of the rest of the boys. Uh, and I will not speak on behalf of the podcast without their voice. But I recommend uh, check it out. It was free on Tubi where we where I watched it um, free with free with ads I want to I want to say free with ads but if, you know who doesn't love a good ad if one, oh, man. If one of us good. has if one of us has ads none of us are free that's true I've I, it's been a really long time since I've watched a movie with ads I I haven't had cable for a very long time and um yeah I know I'm showing off who it was uh, <laughs> but I hate it so much dude it was oh my great. god not my favorite when, way to watch like, this movie they were they broke it up so that it was actually in scene transitions, which is a I guess a pretty cool way to do that. But there was a little thing up in the corner that was like ads are starting in five, four, and I was like, You are ruining my cinematic experience. <laughs> <laughs> I I almost have and it's it's because capitalism has ruined me uh, as a person in the world, but uh coming across to be however however many months ago at this point just every once in a while hopping on to you know free service don't need a, an account if you don't want one um you can just hop on search for me. every once in a while you, you get some ads and i'm like you mm -hmm. harry i like i have not uh I, i'm usually watching physical media or uh movies at a theater or movies that i've uh, acquired through some other shady means um and like rarely am i watching movies with ads but just ah, that nice cozy reminder of how simpler things used to be way back when yeah. also no no rent no yeah. no job um just sitting at home back back in my hometown you know and watching a movie and every once in a while some commercials uh show up and they're even local sometimes uh like they're catered toward like you know the, the a car dealership in a in a in a twin Cities suburb oh that's 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 so nice of them nice yeah, and cozy i mean we should be clear also like tubi is through the the library so like it is like that's categorically oh yeah you're right that is canopy tubi is literally just for ads just a, that, yeah that, it's just that for tide ads. pods can keep yep. paying to sell to you but i i i know it's just it's still, it's like, still I'm, better I'm, than a lot of things when, though. I'm, when, I'm, when i'm watching when i'm watching a movie and finally it gets to the ads portion and like i hated that timer for the same reason because like i could tell my ads are about to end and my consumer experience is about to come to a closing you're really fucking ruining this consumer experience for me i don't want to know that i'm getting back to the movie. i just want it to happen you know i had the exact inverse of the experience uh, that you had that was did that land um we should do what i like to call the junk drawer uh which is Ooh. where we pull out any little final notes it can be anything from our uh favorite shots of the movie to something funny that was said to um i think we've got all got one shared experience with this movie uh that i called out in the discord while i was watching it but um I'll start off by saying that probably my favorite shot of this movie was when she uh, just before she reaches the convent and she sort of ducks through some barbed wire, grabs it with her hands, very stigmata like and then like wraps her arms around this tree in a very loving, like hugging way. And the camera just like like the exposure goes blown out almost like an experimental way and then just cuts to the next like shot the next shot of the movie it was a really weird like formal thing that the rest of the movie did not do for the most part like it was either camera motion or uh quick editing that made the effect of the like the stylized effect of the movie but this was a weird moment where like it was so uh left field that it almost felt like they were burning the the film uh for i mean clearly they weren't but like just the exposure like it gets way brighter until finally it's whited out and we've changed the scene uh, I really loved that shot in this movie. Uh, any, any 
junk drawer thoughts, cinematography or otherwise from the, from the peanut gallery. It here. Really, really, really quick. I don't know if it was a, um, like a, a translation thing or if raisins just hadn't been recognized as a thing yet, but when they were talking about, yeah, we're, we're going to put dried grapes on your bed. Um, so that <laughs> when, when, when you're, when you're fucking, it'll absorb all the, all the bad stuff. And they said dried grapes. Um, the captions are dried grapes. I was like, those are, and I had to Google it. It was like, those are raisins, right? I'm not making that. Okay. They are indeed raisins. Um, I'm not, <laughs> did you, did you our, Google our ne- dried grapes just to see if Google would say, no, raisins? I Googled raisins. Uh, and, I the uh, uh, spoilers that is not what our next segment is about the history of raisins and dry grapes or, or whatever you want to call them but I, that was it's literally the only other <laughs> scattered dumb thought I have had about this shout outs to uh, shout outs to raisins you know what they're they're okay sometimes they're okay sometimes. um you know shout outs to this movie for like definitely demonstrating how weird and occult uh catholicism can be uh transubstantiation is is really wild when you think about it the only sort of like Christian um, denomination that actually literally believes and makes you try to believe that uh, you're eating Christ's uh, flesh and drinking his blood. I've always thought about like, okay, so like if Catholic priests can do that, if they can transubstantiate uh, bread and wine into Christ's blood and uh, body, does that mean that like we could do other things? Are there other transubstantiation abilities? Like, is uh purif like like conjuring the the blood and body of lucifer or something you know what i mean because it's like why stop there hmm. there is like ooh, is is chainsaw man about catholicism harry oh shit oh shit this in, might in be a many, pitch i mean in many ways it is it but maybe that's just me projecting <laughs> i uh um, you, you shout outs pitch to for the, that one. yeah shout outs to the teeth in this movie um the teeth in this movie with the exception of our our lead which hey maybe that's why they hate her so much purif very nice teeth. Everybody else, oh boy, disaster. Her dad has like in there. six left, and they're oh, all. Oh, it's rough. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good that they portray it that way, and I'm not judging the the dentistry of like maybe. I, I guess we said it was the early 1900s, right? I'm uh, assuming. But, you know, rural Italy. It's like basically that's. They're living in the 1600s. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what that was one of the fun juxtapositions. Uh, not to bring up another one before our hour mark, but um, one of the fun juxtapositions was when they go outside and ring their bells and do their chants and blow their smoke and stuff to get the clouds to go away. They're out there in like pea coats and fucking sport jackets and smart hats and stuff. These aren't like 1700s peasants who just really believe there's something in the sky that's going to make the clouds go away like these are people who are supposedly of a version of like very closely like close to western society civilization you know and they still like hold these traditions that are very tight to like they're not like they're they're of the land they're an agricultural society but they're not natural ists i guess they're not like yeah. a pagan society they've just right. got like the, the the church is the pinnacle of their worldview to the point where like yeah we can also see the wonders of modern you know uh, uh textiles and fabrics and also think yeah there's like actively i'm going to yell at the sky and it's going to fix things that was just a fun yeah no i mean it's definitely it's one of my favorite genres of like holy crap there's a gun right where it's like you kind of you forget and then all of a sudden he like busts out a modern shotgun and you're like what the hell like where did that come from um, i also think that there's like a shot of the skyline at one point and i'm probably wrong i'm pretty sure i'm wrong but i'm like i could have sworn i saw like power lines just hmm. like in in the distance right so like just another sort of like an that was yeah. really interesting 
Power Lines in the Distance, uh, the name of Slag Ravine's first album. Is Ooh, that... We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, uh, before we close the uh, junk drawer, are we going to talk about Perry? Jason, were you going to bring up Perry? I wanted <laughs> to see if anybody else would. Uh, so if anybody remembers from watching our episode about Bellatar's Damnation, there's a dance scene in that film, uh, a couple scenes in that film, where there is um, there appears to be maybe a remnant of uh, the film's uh, restoration or transfer to digital media, uh, where there appears to be in the corner of, I mean, you could call it a squiggly line. Uh, he doesn't move a whole lot, but uh, we dubbed that little squiggly line, a uh, young man named Perry the Pube. <laughs> Uh, we're pretty sure it's a pubic hair that must have just like transferred from Bailatar's own uh, jorts into the film's film, like the, the individual cells of the film. Oh, um, mercy. Pretty sure that during the scene where they're laying down their rocks in the square and admitting their sins and asking for forgiveness, pretty sure my friend Perry makes an appearance. Oh, like, Perry makes two, multiple appearances like, in like, this movie. Is he, is, did he, did, were there ones Bottom that I didn't notice? Bottom of the notice? screen and top of the screen. Wow. I think that there are a couple. I don't remember the second, but I think that there might be three, but there are at least two appearances of Perry. My man gets um, around. Yeah. The wild thing is it's still Bellatar's uh, pubic hair. You know, I had nothing to do with this project. Just <laughs> Why? <laughs> Wait, which was, which was for Damnation was after this. So, oh my God. Yeah. Is it, uh, is it Bruno, um, Bru Brunello Rondi's pubic hair that actually oh. ended up in Damnation? Why and how and why? Uh, thank you very much for listening to this discussion. We have one more segment of the show. We Shout need to get to Perry. To. Shout out to Perry. Uh, come back on the pod. Uh, and uh, and we have I, I need Harry's help uh, leading us into yes. this final segment of the show, which is going to be like slant related to the national, I guess, something Ooh. like that. Colin is shot. We'll find out on this segment, which we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Wow, thank you, gentlemen, for that bewitching introduction. Uh, today, there's there's just going to be so many of them. That's right. We will be teeming with demons. Um, Jason, for the show notes, I envision teeming, um, but you just lop off the G and have it be an apostrophe. I am I'm always with I'm in lockstep and one step ahead of you. It's just make I, it I feel I feel like I've mind meld drifted with you right now. It's the sound of us mind melding. Um, Anyways, uh, shout out to Perry the Pew. What I'll do is present a, a series of prompts related to demon adjacent media. Um, I, the description doesn't make sense, but you'll get it eventually. After each statement, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. Um, there are two of you here today. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, trivia mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles and not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, we'll start for our first one with 2016's The Neon Demon, uh, which among many genuine delights includes Keanu Reeves in an offbeat supporting role. How tall is Keanu Reeves, Harry? Oh, man. 5'11". Um, Harry says 5'11". All right, I got you down for that. Jason, what do you think? I'm going to say 6'1". I don't think I've ever answered this question and been right, or sorry, been right on by guessing like the shortest estimate and my shortest estimate is about 510 so i'm gonna go six one all right hey fair enough uh going off a few sources on the internet keanu reeves is reportedly six feet one inch tall oh, jason no. daphnis the, let me the finish stars are aligning. water holy shit Paul king in addition to everything else yeah way to go jason it's me perry the pube <laughs> 
<laughs> just, just, just wanted to congratulate you. Every time we have a panic moment, just hit the Perry the Pew button. <laughs> I I was debating whether or not to uh, unmute Perry's microphone um, when we were talking about him. Uh, but, maybe we, maybe we can uh, yeah, source him oh, for the he next. He scurried time. away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps. Like an inch. Yeah, I think I think. Oh, I, I don't want to. Um, I, without I don't want to bury the lead here, gentlemen. I think he might be possessed by a demon. He's scurrying all oh, around doing God. weird acrobatics. <laughs> um, he's bunking with me for for the weekend. Um, hmm. hang in there, big guy. Uh, anyways, so yeah, point, Jason. Uh, for our second question, we'll pivot to 2007's Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which was directed by Tim Burton. Um. Noted demon. Just kidding. I don't know him personally. In many IMDb profiles, they've got a section dedicated to trademarks of that particular artist. What I'm going to do here is list three Tim Burton trademarks per IMDb. Two will be real. One will be fake uh, by IMDb standards anyway. And your job will be to pick out the fake trademark. So I'll just read them off here. First trademark, long unwashed hair, black clothing, and large sunglasses. So that's the first trademark. Second trademark, frequently features dead or dismembered dogs. And third trademark, Unexpectedly soft-spoken. So which one of those is the fake IMDb trademark Harry, who's sporting a really good face right now? Um, I, I guess I'm going to go with one because that had the most sort of like nouns that you could have swapped out. So I'm going to go with the first one as the fake one. Gotcha. Okay. Etched that in concrete over here. And Jason, which trademark are you going with for the, for the fake one? Um, first, Tim Squirton. Second... I like that we're trying to metagame uh, Cody's noties at this point, where it's like the greatest number of swappable nouns is the one that I'm most suspicious of. Uh, I'm going to go number two. All right, number poo. Forgot for about Jason. zero. The yeah, well, yeah, we can't uh, we can't cover the spread here, uh, and indeed the fake trademark is C. Um, unexpectedly soft spoken. Uh, I'll just say of all the the questions that we've done like this with the the trademarks, Burton has the most listed trademarks in his profile that I can recall. He's got twenty eight of them, Whoa. and a good amount of them are either unusually specific and or just flat out incorrect. Or like <laughs> he'll he did something he did something for two of his. 35 movies. I got to tell you folks, that's a trademark. Um, He was born in Louisville. And like, that's the whole thing. That's his trademark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the trademarks just said nose um, with no other like (laughs) identifying characteristics. It just just literally read nose. It was like, okay, I name is IMDb. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It's he's known for that. It's his trademark. (laughs) Um, So no points given for that. Um, I'll just say still very much anybody's demon or game. Um, So uh, Jason's uh, still up one, nothing against Harry for question three. We'll call out 2009's angels and demons which stars tom hanks with him in mind we're going to go ahead and invoke the rashomon rule which is that no film needs to be longer than rashomon a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by uh by akira kurosawa um in a movie that we uh, never recorded on fun fact uh it's not a fun fact uh, it's not fun but it is a fact uh, i'm pretty sure i remember recording on it that's not how i remember it uh, simpsons joke.mp4 uh rashomon comes in at 80 minutes so i ask you all what percentage of tom hanks most popular 20 credits going by letterbox popularity his uh, just the top 20 what percentage of those abide by the rashomon rule harry Mackin? i'm gonna go with 10 percent. harry is gonna go with 10 percent and to you, Jason Daphnis, uh, what do you think the answer to this question is? 5%. I don't think it's very much at all. 
Jason is going 5%. So of the 20 most popular uh, Tom Hanks vehicles, Tom Hanks vehicles, vroom, vroom, by letterbox metrics, two of them come in at, uh, at or under 88 minutes, which gets us to 10%. So those two, if I remember correctly, are um, Toy Story 1, the first one, which is like 81 minutes or whatever, and the famous Tom Hanks vehicle, The Simpsons Movie, which I think is at what? 87 minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, I think he voices himself in it, if I remember correctly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's in his that's top a fun twenty. Thing. That's popular. what I was going to say. I'm, I'm honestly right. kind of surprised that yeah. that cracked the top it was, twenty. It was towards the bottom. I think part of it might have to do. Oh, I don't remember this very well at all. Somebody can call me out if I'm wrong. I want to say like Simpsons movie. Oh, would that be streaming on Disney Plus or is that a reach? It might be a streaming hmm. like one that's streaming a lot. It's it's also. I mean, it's The Simpsons and it's 87 minutes yeah. long. So like, why not? But yeah, I thought that was kind of weird as well. It's like, I don't, I guess people aren't, people aren't uh, crawling out of the woodwork to see angels and demons. That was definitely below this. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was that interview he just did where he was like, I made a lot of movies and a few of them are actually good. Right. And I think he was like, yeah, like trying to make <laughs> a cute joke, but yeah. And then everybody online was like, oh wait, yeah, he's kind of right. He's had a lot of misses <laughs> in his career. I, yeah. I think um, there, I definitely saw that probably because of the bright wall, dark room. Um, Twitter account just quote retweets being like and Joe versus the volcano is at least three of those right Tom Hanks uh, and they're right because that movie's good fun um, uh, I, I need to rewatch that uh, but first we need to finish this game it's because it's all tied up it's 1-1 one, one. Um, Harry got on the board with that one and we've got two more questions left and anything is possible uh, for question four let's uh let's go ahead and chat uh about a little song called Demons off the 2013 album Trouble Will Find Me by the band The National uh, that album has been cited by critics and or podcasters as a quote unquote, a triumph and quote unquote, one of the great artistic achievements period. Uh, what score does the album trouble will find me hold on Metacritic Harry? Um, out of a hundred 88. Harry says 88 for 2013's trouble will find me. And Jason, what do you think? I'm going to say like 76. I like it a lot, but I think that the internet tends to, weigh these things weirdly like everything that i love is like eh, it's a good 6.75 on metacritic well that's funny jason because everything i love is on the table everything i love is uh out to sea there I you think, go right yeah uh the national um so trouble will find me garnered a cumulative score of 84 on metacritic uh which wow. which is far too low but but what can you do? Um, so Harry got closest uh, with that one. Um, pre pretty close, um, both of you within single digits. But um, yeah, Harry was a little bit closer, so he gets the point. Scores currently 2-1 Harry as we go into the final question. And for this fifth and final question, our inroad will be the film Demon Lover from 2002 and directed by Olivier Assayas. Uh, an Assayas joint the three of us have all seen is 1996 Irma Vep, which stars the goat Maggie Chung. Uh, for the, oh, I, I, what do I say? Uh, stars the goat Maggie Chung. Maybe you've heard of her. Uh, my question for you: What is? And, and I, I, I ran out of steam by the end of this. Apologies. What is Maggie Chung's overall meta score? We're going to stick on Metacritic. So, of the credit, uh, the credits in Maggie Chung's filmography, aggregated to you know Metacritic, meta score, meta rankings, meta meta. Um, what does her overall meta score sit at, Harry? I think she's a size seven. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I misheard the question. Uh, no, horny. I, I think, um, a, a flag I on the play. <laughs> little, little too horned. Uh, I'm going to go with, um, oh man, you know, let's just keep it up. I'm with 69. Let's go with 69. 
All right. Well, you're ejected for for the next three series. Uh, you goober, you um, and Jason. What do you think? <laughs> uh, Jason, can you top that in terms of horniness or uh, correctness? Which we don't know how correct it is because I'm being coy. But what do you think the answer to this question? Can is? I top a sixty-nine? Huh? Um, I should have known. I, I I know that there's way more movies of hers than I've ever seen, and I assume like the cream of the crop rises, and I only see the the good or best stuff. I'm going to assume it's maybe a little bit lower than this. I'm going to say like a 63. All right. Jason says 63. Harry says 69, as he is wont to do. So based on 12 Metacritic results, 12 films that uh, Meta, Metacritic was able to find Metascores for. I, I know it's, it's, it's Meta Wait, weird. what? This is oh, mad. Okay. What? Yeah. what? What? We need, we need, yeah. we, 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 this, this is extenuating circumstances. We, we deserve another shot. <laughs> this is bullshit. Uh, I, I, I said in the question of all the movies that there are Metacritic scores for. God um, damn it. Cody's listenies. Uh, Maggie Chung has a career average meta score of 74. So the 69, um, Fuck. you know, uh, not perfect, uh, execution wise, but it was close enough. It was it nice. Turns out. Cha-ching, cha-ching, bling, bling. Uh, so with a score of three to one, Harry pulls out the dub. Um, we all got to, to chat about some great demons and some great Maggie Chung. So you could argue that we all got a little bit of a dub today. But um, yeah, thank you. That's it for us. We've been teaming with demons. Harry, would you like to pop off a little bit? You know, I would. Thank you for giving me the platform. I would like to say, though, however, that uh, I also didn't listen to that question and thought it was going to be every single one of her films. And I was sweating about 69. I was like, that's way too high because she's been in like a ton of movies that like nobody saw. Right. Like or some not so great movies as any or ones that like movie star yeah, has like didn't get distribution in the West. And therefore, yeah. like it wouldn't have gotten wrapped up in international. But, it, but yeah, it, yeah but that like, was going to be my framing of it. A lot of ones that we have not had the pleasure of seeing because that's a, film that's distribution a and, and <laughs> yeah, is, is bad. But yes, well, no, you're not wrong. Sorry, I, pretend, I interrupted your, your pop off sesh. No, pretend that I said that instead of the slightly more hateful I thing can. that I said. Um, yeah. Uh, deuces. I did it. When Harry pulls out, we all knew we would. When Harry Mackin pulls out the dub, he becomes Harry Wacken. Uh, Harry Wacken, uh, Wacken off. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, you're the one who got real horny about Maggie Chung real quick. I mean, we can all do that, but like you got a little too specifically horny. It was uh, justice for Maggie Chung should have been Queen of the Trial on 2021. That's right. Thank you, Cody. All right, uh, litigate. Maybe we can like have a category this year or this coming. Oh, edition by the way, where it's like, sorry, hey, this the, is the the, the 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 where we get what is it called a, a, a turnover? Like we get to Ooh, turn over one of the awards from the previous that's years. That's a really good idea. We should maybe love do it. that revisionist yeah. history. I'm down. Yeah. Also, uh, just real quick, Kelly reminded me that we have not been doing due diligence on the little freak not lately. At all. I thought about for that. Like I thought about months. this mm-hmm. movie. Who's the little We're freak in- of this movie? Real quick, real quick. Who's, Antonio, who's freak? I guess. He's he's kind of freaky. He Antonio, seems, absolutely. He's pretty sweaty. Uh, yeah. I I of anybody, I'd say him. Sure. Maybe Salvatore. He's uh, he's. Little- I would have said Salvatore if he was actually like if he had weird like if he had come into that scene and actually had like the the. I don't know, different impulses or different, like he came into that scene with wanting to do something different. Again, it, this was a scene immediately after like a sexual assault scene. Right. So well, I, I mean, that's, ju- that's the problem but with the he's little- just dead. So yeah. that's the problem with the little freak in general, right? Is that like, for me, a little freak kind of connotes like lovable scamp a little bit. And it's like, there are no like 
a lot of these characters are rapists. <laughs> so like I don't I don't want to award them in any sort of like capacity. Uh, you know? So He's there right. are just a lot of movies like that that, you know, it's just like I, I'm not gonna give give out the little freak award to any of these jackals. Can we can we look outside I, the frame for the little freak? Can we say that uh Brunello Francione, uh Brunello Rondi is is the little freak here? The girl watching this? <laughs> that could be some here's here's something just uh, i don't think he has any chance of winning um but that little kid who is like shepherding sheep around that uh that uh pure stole like the stick from and he's yeah. like oh hey somebody help me this lady Dude, is stealing my my shepherd's stick that scene what is, is he, so what is he doing shepherding shepherding uh or goats excuse me um the he's shepherding goats around like during the evening right it was at nighttime it was while no, the wedding was, was taking while place the wedding was happening yeah there's yeah. just this lone kid out on the bluffs and Peary just goes up and beats the shit just out bodies of him. it's him. so funny <laughs> she's just like beating up funny. this kid it's so good it's like a family guy bit like there's no reason for it <laughs> well, exactly it, there was it was literally just to like get her down the hill and down to like where the ceremony was <laughs> just like mm, what's something i can do to bide my time for the next three minutes i know i'm gonna kick this shit this dumb kid <laughs> Take it, take his goats, board. take his stick. He's like, okay, done with these goats. Antonio! Pum 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 pum, motherfucker. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Try Love. It's been about the movie Il Demonio, The Demon, 1963. Check it out on Tubi if you can stand ads. Check it out elsewhere if you can't. Uh, there's one good place I found that you might be able to find it that's uh, maybe not legitimate entirely. Um, piracy is good. Uh, and I will send you the file if you ask for it, but it's big, so be ready. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, this has been a, a Try Love. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Try Line at Try Line Cinema and at Try Line.org. There are a lot of cool series and a, a lot of other cool ways to support the Try Line coming up. Uh, check it out and stay tuned and subscribe to their newsletter and everything to uh, never miss a single beat. Again, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Nice. Great plugs as always, Jason. I may miss a beat every once in a while, but I stay down with my demons. I stay down with my demons. I've been Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. And I've been your once current and future Cody's Nodies champion, Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Thank you. Why have you come here, you dark, ugly cloud? Stop! Go back to the darkness where you belong. Go back where the rooster doesn't sing and where hooves don't tread. Go! Be gone, ugly cloud! Away with you, Cloud! Go away from here, Dark Cloud! Get away already, Black Cloud! Go! Be gone!